Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to Scran, the podcast passionate about Scottish food and drink. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and this week we have partnered with Scotland Food and Drink to reflect on the Scottish food and drink fortnight. I jumped on a call with Scotland Food and Drink CEO James Withers and Minister for Rural Affairs and Natural Environment and MSP for Angus North and Mairns, Marie Goujon, to find out their thoughts and insights into the fortnight. They also discussed how the industry has been affected by the pandemic, why supporting Scottish producers is important to them and what opportunities they see for the Scottish food and drink industry going forward. Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight has ended and it was great to hear from all our local legends. On this episode, I am joined by James Withers, CEO of Scotland Food and Drink and Rural Minister, Marie Goujon. As you're both decision makers in the food and drink arena, it's great to have you here today to talk about the future of Scotland's food and drink industry and reflect on the Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight. So thank you both for joining me on this call. I hope you're both well. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Rosalind. Yeah, me too. Looking forward to the interview. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So just a question for you both to start with. Uh, how did you both get involved in the Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight? Um, so I suppose working for Scotland Food and Drink, it kind of comes with the territory. So we, we organise it now for this must be year 11 that it's been uh, involved. So I've done that terrible Twitter thing of taking photos of my tea and posting that and tagging some of the producers that have been involved in, in making that. My local farm shop, uh, I've been a regular uh, visitor there as well. So I suppose just trying to think, much like we want everyone to do during Fortnite, that every kind of day we go through, every meal we think about, every time we pop to the shops, just thinking about how we might support local producers who have had, you know, much like obviously everyone else, a pretty tough 2020. So, uh, you know, a bit of an opportunity to try and shine a light on, on, on all their efforts during the year. And yeah, just to add to that, I've just been doing pretty much exactly the same. Yeah, just highlighting more of what I really like to do anyway, because I think it's really been through COVID when you see the likes of what our local butchers have done, our local bakers, and pretty much running 24 hours a day, seven days a week to keep everybody supplied and fed and really just shining a light on that. I kicked it off by buying a massive shoulder of lamb from a butcher and I'll be having some Arbroath seafood for my tea tonight. So really just highlighting a a, a lot of the amazing local specialities that we have. Nice. And uh, James, uh, the Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight is about celebrating local heroes, um, as we've been discussing over the last few episodes. But can you explain what regional food groups are and how the public benefits from them? Yeah, so I suppose one of the things that we've probably all seen over the last 10, 15 years has been a real renaissance in Scotland's local food story and food culture. Um, We're a country full of farmers markets now and celebrity chefs. And there's been a real reconnection I think between people in Scotland and the the food that's produced on our doorstep Um, and right on the ground from uh, Angus and Mary's part of the world across to Arran from Perth up to Shetland there are regional food groups that have been coming together bringing producers together and then just thinking a little bit more about how do they try and promote what they're doing in their local area and that might be about working with a local hotel or restaurant to make sure their products are on the menu it might be about 
building food and fortnight events or mini festivals, just any kind of mechanism which can try and promote what they're doing. And it's really built momentum on the ground locally. And there's a big new approach we're taking, thanks to, to Mary, actually, and government are putting some more support into this to try and put greater resources in on the ground. And about 14 different of these regional food groups now are going to be motoring on over the next few years. So um, it, we're not starting from scratch, but it's brilliant to see the momentum. And I think it'll really kick on now over the next few years. Um, and Mary, you mentioned you got a shoulder of lamb um, at the start of this, uh, which obviously comes from a farm. So just a question for you both. Um, how has Scotland's farming community adapted during COVID that you've seen in your different areas? Oh, they, oh, I mean, they, they have done an absolutely incredible job because I think that they faced absolutely massive challenges throughout this process. It was a, a busy time of year for a lot of producers anyway in the first place. But then I think, you know, there had to come with that a whole new system of operations. So from the, the processing of the goods that they produce, how could they do that in a way that they're protecting their, their workers and their members of staff? Uh, and also, even just in terms of recruiting staff, um, I know that particularly for the fruit farms, and there's a lot of soft fruit farms around me and in my constituency, that was a massive issue. It was about getting the labour to enable them to be able to get that produce to the retailers and other suppliers. So they faced absolutely massive challenges, um, but yeah, really done a, a sterling job throughout and, and trying to overcome them. And James, did you see anything happening in your local farms? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with Maria. One of the things, I suppose, whatever is happening in the world, we still need to eat and we still need to drink. So no matter what kind of trauma people are going through from a business point of view and COVID's taken a real personal toll on so many, you still need to keep the, the wheels of the food and drink sector going. And I think it's a huge credit to farmers, to fishermen too, I think the food businesses that, apart from, I suppose, a wee bit of panic buying, we, we all saw in um, March with uh, pasta and toilet rolls running out rapidly. Not that I think we can uh, take any fault of that in Scotland. Apart from that, actually, fridges have been full, freezers have been full, and things have kept moving. So, you know, farmers are a pretty resilient um, bunch. COVID's just been a new and slightly different uh, problem that they've had to try and navigate. But I think they've done an amazing job. And, and, and the fact we've all not had to worry about that, that food supply chain really much at all during it is a credit to them and all the various links from wholesalers and hauliers, from the people that are putting it on the shelves as well. It's been a, a pretty amazing job all around, I think. James reminded me there uh, just about our fishermen as well. And I think for a lot of seafood producers, you know, their market pretty much evaporated overnight. So it was just about, right, OK, well, what can we do to try and support them through that? Um, and try and find other means of taking that, well, incredible produce that we have. So it has just been incredibly challenging times that, that everybody had been forced to uh, adapt to. Mary, you've mentioned the berry farms needing staff, but what other businesses in your constituency of Angus, um, how else have they been affected, do you think? And how have they adapted and kind of sort of, you know, moved on to, to carry on helping produce food? Well, I think that they've really risen to that challenge. I mean, I mentioned labour and uh, a lot of the farms had been an issue, but then they had domestic recruiting campaigns. And I don't think that satisfied 100% of the requirement that they had, but that still went a long way towards uh, helping them. One thing that we did is we set up regular conversations with the different sectors just to see what support we could give and, and to try and help them adapt as much as possible and give uh, the guidance and advice uh, as much as we possibly could because I mean there was also a challenge for some folk that say we'd would have normally supplied the hospitality industry again you know that that market just completely disappeared so it was 
I think that, you know, the producers and the suppliers around here have been massively challenging, but they have been able to adapt through that and, uh, and try and come through that as best they can. And what would you say is the best part of your job and what would surprise some people about your job of being a rural minister? Well, I think things like this are definitely a highlight of it, especially when it comes to food and drink, because, yeah, Jay said we all need to eat. And, well, food and drink is definitely one thing that I'm passionate about, as I know probably a lot of people are. And I think one of the most incredible parts of my job from the rural and environment perspective is I get to travel right across Scotland. It's been a massive education and I get to meet with all the a lot of producers and it has, it's just been great. And in terms of surprising part, I suppose if somebody had asked me a few years ago what carpet sea squirt was, I couldn't have answered. <laughs> you become so clued up on all the most random species of marine life and other things that exist. Some of them can be, you know, are really massive threat to, to some producers, actually. But I think that's definitely been one of the most interesting elements of it anyway. And James, looking forward, if you could wave a magic wand, what would the food and drink industry in Scotland look like in five years' time, do you think? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. I, I think the really exciting part is that we're on a really good trajectory. There's no doubt 2020 has come along and a lot of business will felt as though the rug's been pulled from them. But actually, when you look at all the long-term trends and the stuff that's working in our favour, I think people are more and more interested in where the food comes from, the story behind it, the standards of how it's produced animal welfare more and more it's going to be about net zero and environmental sustainability so all those things are working in in scotland's favor weirdly in five years time uh, one of the things that might be nice is not to have a scottish food and drink fortnight because actually you don't need two weeks of the year where you're celebrating scottish food and drink because it's just kind of the default setting for how we are how we act and how we live and how we make our buying decisions in Scotland that we just have a kind of 52 week of the year embracing of what we're producing on our doorstep so strangely success might be the end of a Scottish Food and Drink fortnight if if that makes sense. And I think things like this have definitely focused people's mind more on local so hopefully you're right it, it carries on past just the two weeks that you're promoting so um, and just a, a quick question for you both what are the opportunities we have as a country when it comes to growing the food and drink industry? After you, Mary. Oh, I, I think we've got some uh, some massive opportunities there. And I think that's one of the key things for me, uh, you know, exactly what James was talking about there and really focusing on local. I mean, ideally, my vision would be we want more local food available locally. I think we've got to capitalise on uh, some of the, the, the actual the opportunities that we've had through the pandemic. So we want to make sure that what we've got local, our local suppliers, are able to feed into the the bigger retailers. We had to strengthen those relationships and try and support our primary producers. And I hope a lot of that continues. But I do hope that, uh, yeah, people will continue to to think locally, to shop locally as much as possible and uh, support the fantastic producers that that we have right across Scotland. And I do think that there there are massive opportunities there for that. And really, from a government perspective, I, you know, I want people to be educated and to know and have an interest in where their food comes from and to really develop that as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of work to do, but definitely a lot of opportunity. Yeah, that, um, that sounds a pretty good vision to me. So I'm, I'm definitely bought into that. I, I think there's been something about the, the local community piece that has come through COVID. So I live on a street and I see signs at the window thanking the postie and thanking 
you know, the people dealing with the dustbins and thanking the NHS. And also, I think we've seen a lot of um, local food and drink businesses see a spike in interest. People want to support the businesses in their doorstep. And I think that, you know, it's weird to think about, you know, positive legacies from, from coronavirus, and it just feels a kind of crass word to use. But I do think there is something about um, that connection into your community that will last through uh, COVID, which will be good news for food and drink producers. I think the balance within that, or rather the opportunity that extends beyond that, is around Scotland's brand. So, you know, I, I've met Japanese sushi chefs who have told me the best seafood in the world comes from Scotland. Albert Roux in France used to say the best soft fruit in the world comes from Scotland. So there's a real international appetite for what's happening here. And that balance between finding customers on the other side of the world, as well as customers right on our doorstep, I th and across the rest of uh, the UK, all of which should come together to make a pretty exciting future. And I totally agree with Mary. If we can get that kind of success in Scotland's brand and growth translating back down to the farm gate and fishing boat, and they feel, you know, they're seeing good returns, they're feeling confident, then I genuinely don't think that if you want to find a place in the world to take the food and drink sector forward, you'll find anywhere better than Scotland over the next few years. So. We just need to keep our shoulder to the wheel, but I think it's, it's really exciting. So obviously we are we are brilliant and we're amazing, and we are, and I don't mean that in a sarcastic way we are, but if could you both uh, name another country you admire in terms of food and drink culture and how you think we could get there if we aren't there already? Yeah, um, I made you go first on the last question, Mary, so I'll, I'll give you some thinking time on this one. It's interesting people look to Italy and France quite a lot, you know, about food culture. What's even more interesting is actually, you know, quite a few then look towards us, actually, and what we've done in terms of, of developing a brand identity. I've been really impressed with New Zealand over the years. You know, it's a country not dissimilar to Scotland, a population slightly smaller than Scotland, it's, you know, a landscape that's never the easiest to farm on or try and make a living on. But they've really, and they're based at the end of the world, but they've managed to connect with the rest of the world. They've managed to build a brand uh, and really find customers at home and overseas. I, I think there's a lot to learn from them and indeed just over the water uh, across the Irish Sea to Ireland as well. I think there's good examples there. But back to your marriage at one question, maybe in five years' time, everyone's going to look at us and say we're the, we're the kind of uh, aspiration to aim for. And I would absolutely agree with that because I think that's one thing that frustrates me when you go to countries like France and you get the seafood. I mean, it's all from Scotland. They've got the best of what we've got. So I think there is a massive opportunity for that for us there. But I also think my husband would kill me if I didn't say France. <laughs> and, uh, so but that's definitely, that's one of the things I absolutely love there. I mean, it, just the fact, it's even the time they take around their meals. You know, lunch time is a bit of an event. It's like a, a three or four course thing. It's there to be enjoyed. You go out, you get your fresh baguette and your fresh bread every morning. It's, it's all these little things and you go to the market every week. I mean, ideally, that's uh, a lot of that is what, you know, we are starting to see here. We're starting to see an increase in the number of markets and farmers markets that we have. I'd like to see a lot more of that. And again, it's those direct linkages from the producer that's, you know, just outside Bacon where I live, selling right into to a local market. And another thing I love there is, you know, going into some of the restaurants, they'll have a poster on the wall with telling you the breeds of cow that your beef's come from. It'll tell you where in France that, that cow was bred. And you go to, you walk past a primary school, and it was the last time I was there, told you the menu and where all the food was from that your kids are going to be eating at school. I think there's so many things like that. And again, we are starting to do a lot of that here, and there is a lot of good work going on already, but 
that those are definitely the areas I think we could develop and kind of build in those those better local linkages. Yeah, that's great. Just to sort of uh, move on to a lighter question, if so for both of you, if you had to invite three dinner party guests to a dinner party at your house, ignoring the fact that we're not really allowed to do that right now, <laughs> and whether or not they're with us just now or whether or not they passed away, who would you invite and why? I well, I have a few different options here. I'd like sometimes I hate this question, but I, well, I definitely since it's food and drink. Now, if I could invite a few people down for tea, and you know, I, I like talking about food a lot of the time anyway. So, I'll go for some chefy options here. But I would invite. Oh, it's got to be Gary McLean. He's Scotland's national chef and uh, master chef winner. Jamie Scott from the Newport as well, and uh, Martha Doyle who has El Tajin which is a, a Mexican restaurant in Montrose, which unfortunately closed, but she's doing deliveries now. And it was like making Mexican food, but with the best of, of produce in the area. So she'd get our goose from up the road in Inverbervie. So yeah, I would invite those three round. They've also got to do the cooking or bring a dish. And then we can spend all night talking about uh, food and drink. So uh, interestingly, I had Gary down as well, but more <laughs> I was hoping he was going to do the cooking, so I wasn't going to count him in my three. But it sounds like he's got a better invite already, Mary. So you can you can take Gary. I'm inviting Billy Connolly every day of the week if I can possibly have a dinner in my house because he's just my hero. I think he's amazing. I'm a big music fan as well, and I've had admittedly a uh, man crush on Dave Grohl of Foo Fighters. We've been there for years, so he's coming to see as well. Gary's doing the cooking, and my probably my final place if Gary doesn't count. I would probably have to give to my wife, and that's nothing to do with brownie points or anything or trying to be the nice husband. It's you really suck. Purely the fact that she's more interested in talking to Billy Conley, not me. And if Billy did ever come round to tea and she didn't get an invite, I think marriage is firmly over. Uh, that's great. Another good guess. Thank you. It's, and you answered very quickly, which is good. A lot of people are like, oh, no, I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you very much. James and Mary, that was great to catch up and find out your thoughts on the Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight and the future for Scotland Food and Drink. So thank you very much. Thanks, Mary. Thanks for doing that. Oh, no, thank you all. It was great. I was like, these kind of things are brilliant. I'm like, yeah, who doesn't love speaking about food in Scotland? It's amazing. Especially at lunchtime. No problem. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks to James and Mary. I really enjoyed that chat. It was interesting to hear that Scotland is a key exporter of high-quality produce to countries such as France and Italy countries which are also highly regarded globally for their food and drink. I also enjoyed hearing who their dinner party guests would be. It's very smart of them to choose chefs that can cook a delicious meal for them and I would probably do the same. I too, like James and Mary, hope that we continue to support these local legends and celebrate what Scotland has to offer, even after the fortnight is finished. Speaking of high quality Scottish produce, head chef at restaurant Andrew Fairley, Stevie McLaughlin, tells us how to cook Scottish langoustines. See, the best way to enjoy a langoustine is, again, have yourself a large pot of water. And this is where people get a wee bit, this is where people miss out because they don't season the water properly and they don't have the water hot enough. So what I would do is I would have, let's say we're cooking six langoustines, six nice big juicy fat langoustines. What I would do is I would take the whole langoustine and drop it into a pan of boiling salted water but that salty water needs to be almost as salty as the sea you're probably screwing your face up and thinking that's too salty it's not it needs to be that salty because the langoustines aren't in there for any real amount of time 
It's not like you're boiling a potato for 25, 30 minutes. You're, you're, you're very, very quickly boiling the langos. Once they've been in there for a couple of minutes and they're real good boils, I would take them out and just let them let them cool until they're hand manageable. And then you almost want to take the tail, break the tail out and then crack the shell, take the whole langos steam out. And then from there, it's going to still be a wee bit warm. I would sprinkle a little bit more sea salt onto that and then have some really, really good homemade aioli with that. I'd make the aioli with rapeseed oil as well. Sit back and enjoy that. Thanks, Stevie. I always enjoy langoustines at a restaurant, so I'll be sure to try that at home. Even though the Scottish food and drink fortnight is finished, it's still really important to be supporting all your fantastic local suppliers. If you're stuck for ideas, visit the Support Local directory at supportlocal.scot where you can find over 400 food and drink suppliers right on your doorstep. Thanks to my guests James, Mary and Stevie and thanks to you for listening to this podcast. If you like what you've heard, please don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. We would like to thank Scotland Food and Drink for partnering with us on this episode. It's been a real pleasure working with them on the past four episodes. Scran is a laudable production and is available wherever you get your podcasts. But for immersive and interactive content, you can download the Entail app. Scran is presented and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Marvin McIntyre.